Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 welcome to the georgine rice show podcast this program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 kpdq we hope you enjoy the show well good afternoon and welcome to the thursday edition of the georgine rice show glad to have you with us today on the program we're going to talk with matthew lamaster he is the author of guilt and grace 10 lessons from aiken about sin and salvation and when's the last time you read the story of aiken we're going to talk about it when he joins us in the second half of the four o'clock hour. Then in the second hour of today's program, we'll share a classic interview with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. They're the co-authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. So that's coming up on today's program. And of course, we'll anticipate the vice, the presidential debate with the former Vice President Joe Biden and President Donald Trump. That's coming up this evening at six o'clock p.m. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Jumping right into uh, top news stories, two new peer-reviewed studies are showing a sharp drop in mortality among hospitalized COVID-19 patients. The drop is seen in all groups, including older patients and those with underlying conditions, suggesting that physicians are getting better at helping patients survive their illness. We find that the death rate has gone down substantially. That's a quote from Leora Horowitz a doctor who studies population health at New York City University, their Grossman School of Medicine, also an author of one of the studies which looked at the thousands of patients from March to August who had been hospitalized. Well, the study, which was a single health system, finds that mortality has dropped among hospitalized patients by 18 percentage points since the pandemic began. Patients in the study had a 25.6% chance of dying of the, at the start of the pandemic. That now uh, rests at 7.6% chance. Well, that is a big improvement, but 7.6 is still a high risk compared to other diseases and Horowitz and other researchers caution that COVID-19 remains dangerous. It's encouraging, but it uh, uh, should be put in its context. Meanwhile, a volunteer involved in AstraZeneca and Oxford University's coronavirus vaccine trial has died. This is according to Brazilian Health Authority and Visa, announcing on Wednesday, according to Reuters. An investigation into the death is ongoing, but the trials will continue. The Wall Street Journal cited local Brazilian press report that said the volunteer was a man in his 20s from Rio de Janeiro. It wasn't immediately clear if and the man received the vaccine or had been given a placebo. An anonymous source told Reuters that if the victim had received the vaccine, the trial would have been stopped. An AstraZeneca spokesperson said that the company cannot comment on individual cases in an ongoing trial due to regulations. However, they did say the company has followed all required review processes. Well, the Senate Judiciary Committee unanimously advanced Judge Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court nomination at its executive business meeting on Thursday. It was a 12 to 2, or rather a 12 to 0 vote with no Democrats present. Well, the 10 Democratic senators on the panel announced that they would boycott the Thursday markup in protest of the proceedings moving forward just before Election Day. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer and the Democrats on the committee said in a statement that the confirmation hearing had been a sham process. They claimed the Republicans had broken the promise and rules 
that were created when they refused to consider former President Obama's Supreme Court nominee, Merrick Garland, in 2016. Fearing a loss at the ballot box, Republicans are showing that they do not care about the rules or what the American people want but are concerned only with raw political power, the statement read. The latest poll, however, indicates 51% of Americans support Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation. Well, they went on to add, we will not grant this process any further legitimacy by participating in the committee markup of this nomination just 12 days before the culmination of an election that is already underway. Well, the statement stands in pretty sharp contrast to remarks that were made by Senator Dianne Feinstein, she was taken to the woodshed, by the way, that ranking Democrat on the panel who thanked the committee chairman, Lindsey Graham, for presiding over one of the best set of hearings she had ever been a part of. Well, Graham said at the top of the meeting that the protest was Democrats' choice and he would not allow it to get in the way of the confirmation proceedings. It will be uh, my choice to vote the nominee out of committee, he said. We are not going to allow them to take over the committee. They made a choice not to participate. The final confirmation vote is expected on Monday. Now, Senator Graham on Thursday at the markup also slammed the Democrats for allegedly beginning the process that led to the increased politicization of the Supreme Court during the Obama administration when they removed the filibuster for lower federal court nominees. I remember telling Senator Schumer, you will regret this, Graham said on Thursday, of when the Democrats got rid of the judicial filibuster today he will regret it. Well, the acrimony around judicial nominations can be traced all the way back to the nomination of Judge Robert Bork. That was back in the 1980s. He'd been contributed um, to uh, by, among other things, Republicans' decision to hold open the seat of the late Justice Antonin Scalia for months before the 2016 presidential election. Well, the move follows a declaration from Schumer earlier this month that Democrats would not supply a quorum for the votes um, uh, like the one scheduled on Thursday to advance Barrett out of committee. So it was not a total surprise, but uh, but other Democrats on the Judiciary Committee did not confirm their boycott until late Wednesday. They said they were making a move in response to the breakneck speed at which the Republicans were moving to, as they put it, jam through this nominee, and the Republicans broke longstanding committee rules to set tomorrow's vote. Well, under the committee rules, you need two members of the minority to conduct business, Graham said, but they're intentionally denying us that participation. They're boycotting the committee. So what I will do as the chairman, um, there will be a majority of the committee present. We will waive the rule. We will uh, report Judge Barrett out. Uh, she will go to the floor and hopefully by Monday or Tuesday, she will be on the court. Judge Barrett deserves a vote. She will receive a vote, Graham said in a statement. Judge Barrett deserves to be reported out of committee, and she will be reported out of committee. She deserves to be on the Supreme Court, and she will be confirmed. Graham added, as to my Democratic colleagues' refusal to attend the, the markup, that is a choice they are making. I believe it's a disservice to Judge Barrett, and des who deserves a vote up or down. She will have that vote on Monday. In other news, uh, Hunter Biden's purported laptop is linked to an FBI money laundering probe, we've learned. The FBI subpoenaed a laptop and a hard drive purportedly belonging to Hunter Biden came in connection with a money laundering investigation in late 2019, according to documents. Um, a verified, uh, it has been verified by multiple federal law enforcement officials who reviewed them. It's not clear at this point whether the investigation is ongoing or if it was directly related to Hunter Biden. Multiple federal law enforcement officials, as well as two separate government officials, confirmed the authenticity of the documents, which were signed by FBI Special Agent Joshua Wilson. One of the documents obtained by Fox News was designated as an FBI receipt for property form, which details the Bureau's interaction with John Paul 
Mac Isaac, owner of the Mac shop, a Delaware repair shop, who reported the laptop's content to authorities. A document uh, has a case ID section, which is uh, filled in with a hard, a rather a handwritten number. According to multiple officials and the FBI's website, 272, which was one of uh, those numbers or a set of the numbers, is the Bureau's classification for money laundering, while 272D refers to money laundering unknown uh, specified unlawful activity, white-collar crime program. According to FBI documents, one government official described 272D, which were the four letters applied to this particular uh, laptop, as uh, transactional or blanket. Well, the FBI cannot open a case without um, predication, so they believe there was predication for criminal activity, the government official says. This means there was sufficient evidence to believe that there was criminal conduct. Again, we're just getting this um, information today. Eric Trump has accused uh, Joe Biden of hiding from one of the biggest scandals in American history. It's an election year. And Susan Ferraccio, she torched CNN's Brian Stetler for dismissing Hunter Biden's news while defending the Russia coverage. Biden has denied the family profited from his son and his name, saying that there's no basis for Hunter Biden's story. And Dr. Jill Biden avoided a tough question on The View as the hosts skipped past Hunter Biden's allegations. Meanwhile, President Trump's team is going to monitor the mute button tonight during the presidential debate, the final and only the second. Uh, The technician who is responsible for that, they'll be monitoring. President Trump's campaign says it intends to monitor the technician in charge of the mute button on Thursday night's final presidential debate in Nashville, Tennessee. The Commission on Presidential Debates announced this week that it will exercise its ability to mute uh, Trump and Democratic nominee Biden in either uh, if either candidate talks outside his allotted two-minute time slot. The new debate format follows the first presidential debate, September 29th, which was marred by the pair speaking over and interrupting one another, with Trump insulting Biden's intelligence and Biden telling Trump to shut up and calling him a clown. The moderator that night, Fox News' Chris Wallace, attempted to uh, rein in both candidates, continuously reminding them to follow the rules and speak only when it was uh, their turn. In a statement on Monday, the commission said it had determined that it is appropriate to adopt measures intended to promote adherence to agreed upon rules and inappropriate to make uh, changes to the rules. And while both campaigns have the option to have a representative monitor the technician operating the mute button, only Trump's campaign confirmed that they plan to do so. A spokesperson for Biden's team confirmed that they have not committed to having someone monitor the technician. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break? We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Matthew Lemaster, author of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken about Sin and Salvation. We'll also hear in the 5 o'clock hour a classic interview with Sid and Jeff Holsclaw. They're the co-authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. That's coming up in the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about the presidential debate, the last debate taking place tonight, 6 o'clock Pacific time. Well, the Presidential Debate Commission co-chair claims that the mute uh, mute button is uh, neither a change nor unfair. I have to look back at that. And Chris Wallace said it's surprising that Joe Biden isn't campaigning with two weeks until the election. He has lots of people campaigning for him, including the mainstream media. So I suppose he has that luxury. Senate Democrats reportedly may uh, may and did boycott the Amy Coney Barrett committee vote. And GOP senators are pushing to ban Supreme Court 
uh, court packing, saying we're sticking with nine. Uh, Senator Daines plans to introduce a resolution condemning court packing as Republicans ramp up their pressure on the Democrats. And Senator Hawley is predicting that Democrats will attempt to slow down the process as the Barrett confirmation is set for Monday for a vote. Republicans are denying Schumer's third attempt to delay the uh, uh, confirmation process on Monday as well. Senator Schumer says that he and Senator Feinstein had a serious talk after the Barrett hearings. She complimented McConnell and, you know, actually hugged him, apparently. Uh, Barrett met with senators ahead of the committee vote today on her Supreme Court nomination, and it is now a done deal. The vote will take place on Monday. Well, CNN skipped the FBI news conference that revealed Iran and Russia are attempting to interfere in the 2020 election. And an Ohio sheriff is offering a one-way ticket for celebrities who want to leave the country if Trump is reelected. And Charlemagne the God, that's his name, credited Trump for actually talking to young black male voters, saying that doesn't happen very often with very many candidates. Uh, Utah Sheriff's Sergeant is questioning the circumstances of the Zion hiker who was rescued recently, saying that they don't add up. And the Trump campaign took over the YouTube masthead for the the, uh, debate day with the help of the UFC supporters. Jason Whitlock says that the facade that black men can't relate to Trump is starting to end. Well, Trump knocked Pelosi and Schumer for their attempted blue state bailout amid the coronavirus relief package. And ExxonMobil CEO is warning that the job cuts are coming for employees in both the United States and Canada. Mr. Kudlow says that the contrast between the Trump and Biden economic plans couldn't be clearer and will be part of the debate. Well, Tesla has posted record results, saying the next phase of growth is now in focus. And QB is winding down operations after less than a year in operation. I'm not even sure why we should uh, lament that. Well, the polls are tightening as Trump surges. That's what the headline says. Twitter, uh, one post says of all four um, new polls, two are within the margin of error. The other two have Biden up nine. Things are getting interesting, very interesting when you look at the 538 presidential predictor. Give Trump Florida and Arizona and North Carolina or Pennsylvania and his chances are suddenly nearly 50 percent. If you play with the 538 map, you can see how it only takes a couple fairly likely states, as I've mentioned, to put Trump in good position, even without Michigan, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Well, CNN reports that Trump voters are much more likely to be extremely enthusiastic in the states of Florida and Pennsylvania. And polls show Trump gaining on Biden in Pennsylvania with most within uh, the uh, margin of error. Rasmussen, who had po- had Biden rather up 12 nationally two weeks ago, has Biden up three now. And for the first time since August, a poll has Trump even with Biden in Wisconsin. Investors Business Daily has Biden up 2.5 percent nationally as Republican voters have uh, come home while Democrats have strayed. Scott Housel believes Trump's path to an electoral college win is more likely than Biden's. Meanwhile, nearly two out of three voters oppose Biden packing the Supreme Court. And again, we don't know the outcome of this election until we've actually cast our ballots. They are counted and uh, a declaration is made. Let's hope that's Election Day and not some days later. Meanwhile, the entertainment industry has attacked Chris Pratt for not attending a Biden fundraiser. Suddenly, the left erupted and he might be a Trump supporter panic. His co-star, who has spent considerable time with him and appreciates his genuine Christianity, has defended him. Then they got hammered by the mob. John Daniel Davidson said, understand the responses here. A significant cohort on the left believes that if you are a white Christian man, uh, you should have no right to speak. But also, no matter what your race or sex, if you have the wrong opinion, you should not to have the right to speak. It's deeply anti 
American, and that certainly is the case. Well, Trump rallies are seeing a high percentage of Democrats, we're being told, and a shockingly high percentage who have not voted in the last four elections. Uh, from the story, one example, at Trump's October 17th stop in Janesville, Wisconsin, McDaniel said that 47.5% of the 13,850 said they were not Republicans. Well, open schools are not causing the spread of coronavirus. From this story, combined with anecdotal reports from a number of U.S. states where schools are open, as well as a crowdsourced dashboard of around 2,000 U.S. schools, some medical experts are saying it's time to shift the discussion from the risks of opening K-12 schools to the risks of keeping them closed. And as I mentioned earlier, the death rates of COVID-19 are dropping. Two new peer-reviewed studies are showing a sharp drop in mortality among hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Well, homicides have skyrocketed in Los Angeles already more than um, they had in the last year. Not until the, uh, the last sentence of the story on the subject, you note the budget cuts in the police department, which is a contributing factor. And San Francisco has outlawed racially motivated 911 calls calling it a Karen Act, spelled with a C. Somehow dispatches are now being asked to judge the motives of 911 callers. Pat, Mo- Pat uh, Boone rather has released a song written after the Rodney King riots, saying he had shelved it until the recent riots. Pat Boone has written a song. It's 2020, so I guess that makes sense. GOP-led Senate Judiciary Committee has advanced Amy Comey Barrett. The Senate will vote on Monday to confirm her. Hunter's business partner has confirmed that the email and details of Joe Biden's push to make millions from China and the laptop connected to Biden has been linked to an FBI money laundering probe. Joe denies that Hunter profited off of his family's ties, but Hunter said the exact opposite just last year. Well, ABC, CBS and NBC have offered Biden scandals um, less than 15 minutes of airtime over the last couple of days. And the Biden protecting left media promotes a vile underage sex hoax targeting Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani. Facebook workers are expressing shame over their company's censorship of conservative media. And Obama has teared into um, Donald Trump, saying the next 13 days will matter for decades to come. Okay, Biden won't uh, give an answer, which we already knew on Supreme Court packing until at least 180 days after becoming the president. But he is going to appoint a committee to kind of consider the idea. The CDC has expanded its definition of who is a close contact of an individual. And researchers show masks do block coronavirus, but not perfectly. As the risks of reopening schools exaggerated? Well, absolutely, according to NPR. If we have time, we'll get into that today. And the chief of operation Warp Speed hopes to have vaccine doses for everybody by June of 2021. Trump is being targeted by Tehran as Russia and Iranians meddle in the 2020 election. The House Armed Services Committee chair is warning, I see a big fight coming over the defense budget and $19 billion, that's with a B, uh, in taxpayer money was lost to waste, fraud and abuse in Afghanistan, a watchdog group has found. Michigan has dropped the charges against a barber who defied Governor Whitmer's lockdown orders and Minnesota has been hit by the largest early season snowstorm in the state's history. Before percent of Americans think they favor socialism. And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar joined an event with an activist who said America deserved 9-11. Well, Peanuts, the holiday special, will not air on TV this year, at least not on yours, unless you are a subscriber to Apple TV+. It will now be exclusive there. Well, OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma will plead guilty in an $8 billion settlement And Francis has uh, become the first pope to endorse same-sex civil unions. 
President Trump brings world peace. The media yawns. Sudan agrees to normalize relations with Israel, but no one seems interested. Finally, on this day in history, 1979, the U.S. government allows the deposed Shah of Iran to travel to New York for medical treatment, a decision that precipitates the Iran hostage crisis. 1962, in a nationally broadcast address, President John F. Kennedy reveals the presence of Soviet-built missiles based uh, bases rather under construction in Cuba and announces a quarantine of all offensive military equipment being sh- shipped rather to the communist island nation. 1981, the Professional Air Traffic Controllers Organization is decertified by the federal government for its strike the previous August. 1986, President Ronald Reagan signs into law sweeping tax overhaul legislation. And finally, on this day in history, 1995, the largest gathering of world leaders in history marks the 50th anniversary of the United Nations. Up next, we'll talk with Matthew Lemaster of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken about sin and salvation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I know in polite company, and for that matter, in impolite company, we don't like to talk about the subject of sin. But unless we understand it, come to grips with it, we'll never fully appreciate the length and the depth and the breadth of God's grace. Well, my next guest has written a book on the subject, Both Grace and Sin. It's titled Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation. Matthew Lemaster is my guest. He is the pastor of Southern Heights Christian Church in Anderson, Indiana. He is the editor of Theology Magazine and a graduate of Moody Bible Institute. He's also a doctoral student at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. He joins us today to talk about his book and what I hope will be polite company of guilt and grace. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Georgine. It's such an honor to be with you. Well, it's an honor to have you. You know, this subject of sin is one that we really don't like to approach. We don't like to talk about the the dark edge of it, the consequences of it. Um, And yet, as you point out in your book, if we fail to do that, we are going to fail to fully appreciate the, the depth of God's grace. You've written on this subject, what motivated you to take it on? Uh, in a a culture and a time when we're really loath to to talk much about sin? (laughs) Well, that's a good, that's a very good question. There's uh, an easy answer and then a a little bit more complex answer. But the easy answer is I was preaching through the book of Joshua and I was um, preaching on this passage. And what's funny is I, you know, a couple of people I knew who had preached through Joshua, their pastor had skipped this chapter (laughs) <laughs> in the book of Joshua when he was preaching on it. And uh, I just felt, I, as I came across it, though, I just, I was shocked by how important it was and how hopeful it really was if you thought about it in uh, all its implications. But the the longer term answer is, or the long, more complex answer is that, you know, I'm a pastor. And so um, for better or for worse, I get to see up front and up close um, a lot of people's uh, sin in a lot of ways manifest themselves. And they never, part of the reason that they never experience breakthrough or forgiveness, part of the reason that they never experience hope um, and, uh, and peace about that sin is because they've never, they've never really reckoned with what sin actually is. And they've never really considered how it damages other people. And so those, those are some of the, some of the many reasons I thought it was a good book for the time. Now, has the church contributed to this 
um, tendency to not really take sin as seriously as we ought? <laughs> uh, I, I think some pastors, that's a very good question. I think some pastors have preached a message um, that is a lot more about meeting felt needs um, and telling people, tickling people behind their ear, like Second Timothy says, than preaching the, the word of God in all of its um, audacity and all of its scandal and all of its hope. And so um, I, I think there are many, many uh, faithful preachers who have been faithfully preaching the word of God in year in and year out. But the ones that you hear about, the ones who get invited to uh, big conferences, the ones who um, very often are the most popular are the ones that shy away from this message. So I do think, unfortunately, often churches have contributed to this problem. Your, the title of your book is Of Guilt and Grace, which puts this in the context of a relationship with God. It, it emphasizes the notion that we are accountable to him and what we do matters, uh, and that he has already made provision for what inevitably will be our our sin. What ultimately do you want your readers to, um, to emphasize as they're reading the book about um, ourselves and God, our relationship and our accountability to him? Yeah, well, that's, that's a good question. I do think whenever you're reading a book, you want to, maybe you're like this, Georgine, whenever I'm reading a book, I kind of sometimes flip to the end to see what's coming. I know that's not, I know that's not a good practice. You do that, Georgine? I do. Do (laughs) Um, And uh, when people are reading my book, I think they maybe will be tempted to do that because it does, um, it does hit you. It's really heavy. Um, But the heaviness is good, but there is hope at the end. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more that we reckon with our, sin, the more that we see it in all of its ghastliness and its its darkness, the more brilliant the light of the glory of Christ becomes. And so um, as they're reading my book, um, I, my hope is that they will be, that they will expect that, that, that the end of it is um, just as good news as the rest of it is bad news. Yeah, yeah. Now you go to the book of Joshua. Many of us are familiar with the book, but then you go to what some might describe as sort of an obscure character in that book, Aiken. Can yeah. you give us a little bit of the backdrop of that story? Yeah, well, um, that's a very good question. Aiken was, uh, we, we actually don't know that much about him. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to reconstruct him, you kind of have to have a little bit of a little bit of um, imagination, I guess. But Aiken was probably one of the more elderly, more respected citizens. He was a, of the tribe of Judah and one of the um, one of the leaders of the tribe of Judah, from what we can ascertain. You know, he had he had a big family, so he's the head of his clan, and um, and so he was, you know, a well-to-do, respected, prominent person in the people of Israel. Probably an experienced. A veteran of, of many wars. And so he would have been looked on as kind of a role model in his community. Um, and he would have been um, uh, someone who a lot of people would have looked up to, which is why when he sins by stealing um, goods and gold from the city of uh, Jericho, when the people of Israel invaded and they conquered Jericho, um, which is why it was so much more destructive because of the influence that he had. Now, the interesting thing is he committed the crime, 
But he was very reluctant to acknowledge and ultimately to confess his crime. He rejected what was available to him to resolve this issue, at least between him and God. Uh, and we can learn a great deal by his, or rather from his response to the events that he himself were responsible for. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, I, I think that's always true when people hide stuff, when they hide their sin, when they hide their shame from others, it has um, really destructive effects. And so part of the reason I think that this story is even told in the book of Joshua, because you're right, it's very obscure and uh, is very, you know, like, as you so rightfully pointed out, a lot of preachers avoid these kinds of topics. Um, and yet, I think it's provided there to help us learn from his mm-hmm. example in a negative way, you know. And uh, I think it makes the example of other people in the book of Joshua, like Rahab, or like the Gibeonites, or like Caleb, all the more um, impressive. So it kind of colors all the other characters. It's really amazing. Now, the way you structure your book is you um, highlight the the 10 things that we learn from uh, Achan and his sin and his response to the grace that could have been available to him. Can you describe for our Mm -hmm. listeners, and when we come back from our break in about a minute, we'll go through these 10, but kind of describe how you uh, dissect Achan's story and what we can glean from his failure? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think... So, so simple. Could you simplify the question a little bit, Georgine? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm just inviting you to kind of describe for our listeners how you structured the book that helps us walk through each of the yeah. lessons we learned from Aiken. Yeah, um, that that's a very good question. The first uh, the first couple chapters are a little bit more kind of background. So the first three three chapters or so are a little bit more just kind of background describing everything that is kind of happened and kind of help people understand the implications. And then the rest of the lessons are just following the rest of the story. And so they're just kind of walking through the story of Achan and Joshua seven of how the, um, of all the, the wicked things that he did and how it affected everybody else. And so that's kind of how, uh, that's kind of where I, found the structure is is just kind of by picking it, not picking it out, but, you know, walking alongside the story of Aiken and scripture to uh, to come to it. We're going to take a quick break, but we will return in a moment to continue our conversation with Matthew Lemaster. The book is titled Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation. And I love the balance between the two. It's not just about sin. It's about salvation, which is the good news in the story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Matthew Lemaster. He's the author of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation. There's a great deal we can learn from a very brief story in uh, in a book that we don't uh, perhaps read as often as other books, uh, the book of Joshua. One of the first things you write about Aiken is that sin is anything but simple. We tend to underestimate it. We tend to minimize it. But as you point out in this chapter on the sin of Aiken, it's anything but simple. Why do we tend to... Um, First of all, we're reluctant to talk about it, but we're, we also tend to um, understate uh, or under-evaluate the significance of our own sin. Yeah, I think that's a great question, Georgine. Um, I think one of the reasons that we're just so reluctant to understand what sin is, is because it 
maybe the simplest way to put it is it just it hurts you know it hurts to see how deep the how deep the rabbit hole goes how deep the roots Mm. of sin really go into my heart and so if i just say i know that i'm a sinner and that's all i have to say and i don't really think about how about the sin underneath the sin you know if i don't think about those things then i don't have to go through that but the process of reflection is good and it's important and it's necessary because that's what leads to repentance um and so i think part of the reason that we don't consider why sin uh, we don't consider the complexity of sin is um because we don't like to think those things about ourselves <laughs> uh we don't like to to think about how destructive it can be and we don't yeah. like to think we don't like to think that you know i'm really that bad we like to think that about other people but we don't like yeah. to think it about ourselves you suggest that we often believe our best intentions somehow excuse our offenses. Can you talk a bit about yeah. that, whether or not that's a legitimate perspective or not so much? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, that is a very, very, very good question, Georgine. Um, and uh, you're not the first person to ask me about that, that part of the book. Um, yeah, the, the reality is uh, sometimes sometimes our intentions are not nearly as good as we think they are. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think maybe if, not that this would ever happen to you, Georgine, but for some of us who maybe have gotten into arguments or heated discussions with our spouse. <laughs> Never happened. Nope. <laughs> Never, not, maybe not to you. No, nope, no. Nope. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I'll say, well, I didn't mean to say that. Um, and, uh, maybe I think that's true in the moment, but um, chances are I don't realize what I actually meant to say, um, and I don't really understand all my motives. But even if that were true, even if I was telling the truth that I didn't mean to say to do that, um, that wouldn't mean that it was a perfectly excusable action. You know, the the story that I use uh, as an illustration in the um, in the book is the story of uh, just the most cringeworthy episode of television that's ever been made. The office of uh, Scott's pot where uh, the manager, Michael Scott promises to this uh, poor under-resourced um, elementary school that if all the kids graduate high school, that he'll pay for their <laughs> college education. And he can, Oh man, have you ever seen that episode? Uh, it makes It's so awful. It makes it uh, so dark, but it's so funny. And uh, anyway, so they they uh, promise that they're going to he promises that he's going to help them graduate. But of course, he can't do that. There's no way that he's ever going to be able to pay that. He's a middle manager at a struggling uh, paper company. (laughs) So even though he maybe had the best of intentions uh, or so he thought anyways, uh, that didn't make it a legitimate action. (laughs) That just. Uh, it, if anything, it just made it worse because he was so naive about what he was doing. And so um, that's kind of what I mean by it is just because we have the best of intentions, if we actually did, it, which, you know, of course, we don't actually have the best of intentions. But even if we did, that wouldn't make something that is wrong right. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm getting at there. Yeah. A great example. I, I just turned inadvertently to the office just last night. So it's kind of funny that you oh. bring that, that reference up. Oh, did you really? <laughs> oh, such a brilliant TV show. Yeah, that's funny. Well, your chapters are sin is against God. Sin affects others. It hurts others. 
but that God acts on our sin. Again, we tend to underestimate the scope of what we have done. That's an offense ultimately to God, but has an impact on others. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about um, that relationship with God and how our sin impacts our own circumstances and others far beyond what we might have imagined. In fact, in a Bible study I attended just this last week, one of the points that was being made was we don't have the choice uh, to determine the uh, consequence of our sin. We engage in sin and the rest of it is completely out of our hands and it can spiral out of control in ways that we couldn't imagine. Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit could not have imagined the fallout. So can you talk a bit about that, that fallout? Yeah, well, I oh, that's such a good question, Georgine. I, you know, I think we we tend to think about sin like um, almost like I'm just drawing money out of a bank account. You know, like okay, I know what I did wrong. I'll I'll pay the penalty. I'll fess up. Um, but the reality is that's not that's not how we actually think about ourselves. Like we're not transactional creatures. We live in a complex interrelationship uh, web uh, of personality. We, we live that way with each other. We live that way with our spouse and with our kids and our employers and neighbors. And we live that like we're in the, we're created by God to be in a relationship with God. And so when there's something that goes wrong with us, if we're truly human, it can't just go wrong with us. It has to go wrong with those relationships that we have with others. And so necessarily our sin is going to have consequences on others um, and necessarily our sin is going to have consequences on, um, on our relationship with God. And I think people, not just, I think, I, I know people don't like to think about sin that way. They, they don't like to think this person is suffering because of what I did. But the reality is until we face that, we'll just keep creating the same situation over and over and over and over again, because Sin is it, it it affects all of our relationships, and I think people. I mean, maybe I I think people think that it is cruel of God to um, to act on our sin. I think people they just think that no, there's no way that a God a God would ever do that. There's no way that a God would really address sin. But the reality is, if God loves his creation, which he does, then he has to act on it, on, on our sin. He has to act on it because sin has caused, it's like this causes ripple effect. It's this tornado that has just kind of sucked everything in. And if God loves his creation, then God has to put a stop to it. And so um, I, I think people think it's cruel, but it, it's really it's not. And it's kind of God to reveal our sin and expose it. I mean, that's what people, that's probably what people just don't understand is that God, God's exposing our sin. The, the husband who gets caught watching pornography, the kid who gets caught lying to his parents, the, the, um, the employer who gets caught embezzling money, that getting caught, that being revealed is actually God's grace. God is actually trying to step into the situation to provide redemption. He's he's not trying to hide it, you know, and if he was, that would be cruel of him because he's just allowing people to continue to hurt each other. And so um, God acts on our sin because he loves us. And that's hard for people to see sometimes, but yeah. it is so true. So yeah. true. 
your ninth chapter is simply sin leads to death, which is the ultimate penalty. But you end the book with God's grace being available every step of the way. And I'd like to end our conversation on that very fact that God's grace is available throughout yeah. uh, the, yeah. the this process of sin and um, the fallout and the consequence and all of that. God's grace is available. Oh, I'm so glad that you that we're at this point because um, I'm a I'm a grace guy. <laughs> I'm a <laughs> I'm a gospel guy. I I'm not a, a, a I'm not a fire and brimstone preacher most of the time. I mean, sometimes you gotta get people's blood flowing, <laughs> but uh, most of the time I'm I'm all about God's grace. And the the thing that I just think is so perhaps the most shocking to me about this story and just how audacious it is. And that was, that's what makes it all the more, this is what makes it all the more tragic, is that um, God had actually provided for Joshua's sin before Joshua had ever been, or for Achan's sin before Joshua mm-hmm. was ever, uh, took place. I mean, th- that uh, word that it says, that it says that he broke faith, that same word is um, involved in the sacrificial system earlier in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And God provided for redemption, for just such things of people breaking faith with God. And so there was forgiveness and redemption to be had. It, it was right there, and Achan wouldn't take it. And I think he was stubborn. I think he was unwilling. Uh, I think he was so bitter that he hated God, and he didn't want to take grace. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us can't. You know, it, Aiken's story does not have to be our story. That's right. God has grace lifted out for us, and it's available to anyone who wants it. He's made a way through his son, Christ, and anybody can have it as soon as they just reach out and put their faith in Jesus. Well, once again, the book is titled Of Guilt and Grace, 10 Lessons from Aiken About Sin and Salvation, with an emphasis on that word salvation because of God's grace. Matthew Lamaster, thank you so much for talking with us today. I appreciate you and I appreciate the book. Thank you so much, Georgine. It's such an honor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guests have authored the book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And it's a question that some have asked and wrestled with. It's one thing to say that God so loved the world, but does he like me? Well, my guests say um, that we all know what it's like to feel overlooked, to be disconnected and feel ashamed. We might believe in God's love in the abstract, but we often live our lives without experiencing it in any deep or lasting way. Well, Pastor Sid and Jeff Holesclaw, they understand this, and indeed, they felt it themselves. In their engaging book, they explain from the story of Scripture that God not only likes us, but wants to be with us. He also wants to work through us to bless the whole world. The book is filled with personal stories and simple, clear teaching from the Scriptures. Does God Really Like Me applies the good news of the gospel to the shame and disconnection that we all experience in our everyday lives. Well, Sid Holsclaw is co-pastor of Youth and Families at Vineyard North in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as well as a ministry and life coach and spiritual director. Jeff Holsclaw uh, has a Ph.D. from Marquette University, is also co-pastor of Youth and Families at Vineyard, as well as uh, affiliate professor of theology at Northern Seminary in Lyle, Illinois. He's the co-author of Prodigal Christianity. But today they join us as a couple to talk about the latest book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. Sid and Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, it's great to be with you. 
You write in the introduction, we felt disconnected and judged, overwhelmed by friends and underwhelmed by our relatives. We know how it feels when someone doesn't want us around, and we know how it feels when someone is sucking up all our energy. We have been yelled at. We've been yelled. uh, We have yelled back. We've been ignored. We've done the ignoring. We felt people were just putting up with us, and uh, we're just putting up with others, too. Whether we know it or not, all these experiences color our experience of God. If you've been ignored, scolded, or shamed, then you've probably wondered, consciously or unconsciously, if God is ignoring, scolding, or shaming me. One more painful, um, uh, painfully, maybe uh, you think God is just putting up with me. Let's begin with the title of the book, Does God Really Like Me? Why is it an important question when we know in Scripture that uh, God so loved the world, which is a very large number, that he gave his only begotten son? Yeah, well... We found in our ministries and our lives together that um, that when you tell people that God loves them, that because of those past hurts, those wounds from like childhood or just growing up, that a lot of times telling people that God loves them just kind of bounces off of them. And so we we've been trying. How do we find language that really connects, especially with younger people, but really just everybody, that helps kind of sneak past some of those defenses and kind of help the gospel seeds really kind of enter into their life? And so we came up with this idea of does God really like me? And especially we, the subtitle of discovering the God who wants to be with us, that idea that God wants to be with his people. And that really connects with people uh, rather than just saying abstractly that God loves you. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. God wants to be with you. What difference is that likely to make in the life of a believer who's a little insecure about God's love for them, uh, certainly, but whether or not he does long to be with me in particular, that he really likes me in particular, what difference might it make if there was a, a biblical understanding that God does, in fact, care that much about us? Yeah, that's a great question. This is it. I don't, we, we didn't jump on at the beginning, but I just want to come here too. It makes a really big difference because I think we all have those feelings of deep loneliness at times when even when we're with another person, if we feel disconnected from that person, um, it can be incredibly lonely and painful. And understanding that God not only just loves me from afar or loves me in sort of a loves all of his people collectively kind of way, but actually individually longs to be with me and delights in me can really change the way that we feel about our relationships as well. Because rather than needing to have approval and connection from another human being all the time, we can remember even in our loneliest moments that we're actually never alone because God actually wants to be with us and is happy and glad to be with us at any point in time, even when we're in those lonely, isolated spaces. Is our insecurity uh, to some degree the result of misunderstanding the depth and breadth of what Jesus has done for us? Um, Or is it that... um, we just have a hard time imagining that I'm not the exception, that everyone else maybe has sinned, but no one is quite as, as bad off as or unlovely as I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great insight. Yeah. yeah, I think it's actually both. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes our understanding of who God is uh, and what God is up to in this thing that we call salvation or the gospel can sometimes be um, not as uh, full, fully understood as, as we want. And then other times, just real personal life issues kind of keep us from receiving that love of God. And so when we, you ask, well, doesn't the Bible, John 3, 16, say for God to love the world? And that's absolutely true. But we go throughout the whole story of the Bible, and we're trying to really make that love of God concrete in, in people's lives. And so we talk about how, you know, right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, um, Joseph is, you know, 
told, or rather Mary is told, you know, that uh, Jesus is going to be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then at the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus promises, I will be with you to the end of the age. And so there's all these promises that God is going to be with us, even in the midst of the difficult times, even in the midst of the confusing times. And so that's the truth we need to hold on to. But then through the stories in the book, we really talk about our own lives of shame, of disappointment, of comparing ourselves to other people. Right? We do mm-hmm. all these mental and emotional gymnastics to try to find approval of God and with other people. Uh, and so we really kind of tell our own stories about how this love of God really connects with us, too. And so we really do it from both ends, the truth of the gospel, but then also um, our own experiences. Yeah, and I think, um, oh, sorry. No, please go ahead. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters, the title is, Is God Disgusted With Me? Mm-hmm. I think that's that the question that you were asking about, you know, do we believe that we're the exception and God couldn't possibly overlook all the things that I have done? Um, and I think that that chapter really gets at the heart of that, of the, that we get, we get disgusted with ourselves. Um, I think we are so filled with remorse and shame over our own sins that it's, it's so difficult for us to imagine that even in that place that God would still draw near to us and seek us out and pursue us. Yeah. He has made provision for just how unworthy we are. And we, it's hard for us to really appreciate all that he's done in order to give us that access. Absolutely. Yeah. I I love that you write that uh, you've written the book for two reasons. One, to communicate to your reader that you belong in God's presence, that God is with us. And secondly, that you have a place within God's purpose, um, God through us. And and sometimes we may accept that, okay, through Christ, uh, God is with us under every circumstance, but I still am not sufficient to be, uh, to find purpose in, in God's plan. We somehow, again, Imagine that we might just make it in by the skin of our teeth, if you will, but to be a part of God's, there's a place for me within God's purpose, that might be a challenge to embrace. Yeah, absolutely. We, so when you think of uh, somebody liking you, the first step is, well, yeah, they want you in your presence, right? So when you go over, when little kids go play with each other, you know, it's kind of like you can tell when one kid doesn't want another kid around, right? But but then you know that uh, someone really wants you to be in their presence when they start letting you play with their stuff. You know, like we all went over to our grandparents' house or someone's house, and they're like, oh, you can't go in that room, or don't touch that thing. You know, it's like the really fancy houses. But God's not like that. Like, he actually says, hey, you can be with me. We, also, we, we talk about through the book about how God has invited us into his family and into his house, you know, to live in his home with us, uh, with him. But then he also gives us gives us a share in his business is what we kind of talk about the family business of salvation of doing the things of God, a flourishing life. And so that's another mark that God wants to be with us is because he actually shares his mission with his, with his people. And, and that's, that's both a responsibility, but it's also a huge blessing. Yeah. Right. And also it's a blessing that transcends whatever current um, occupation we're called to. So even if you're, you know, um, serving in a drive through window, you can still have a part in God's family business as you're seeking to flourish life and to be a blessing to all the people that come through that drive through um, I talk in the book a couple different times about how hard it was for me when I first um, was staying at home with my kids and feeling like I had sort of been removed from any sort of uh, visibly recognizable work in the world and how connecting with my place as being part of the most significant purpose there ever was, which is to be a blessing to the entire world, that God calls us to be a blessing to the world. And so being able to participate in that, even as a stay-at-home mom, gave me great purpose 
even when I didn't feel like I was being recognized for anything that I was doing. Yeah, that's good. We're talking this afternoon about the book, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. And that's not just me and Sid Holsclaw and Jeff Holsclaw. We're talking about you. If you are a follower of a Christ, this applies to you. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a few moments to continue our conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Sid and Jeff Holesclaw. They are the authors of Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us, uh, taking us all the way through the scriptures to help us better understand God's plan and purpose for us as his children and his followers, and even the role we play in the family business, as they put it, which I, I like so much. The book is divided into four parts, and each part is structured in a way that we can really take to heart what the scriptures teach us, and we begin to recognize the uh, the heart of God toward us, regardless of our station in life. Uh, one of the things that you do at the, at the um, at each of the, the last chapters in those sections is uh, to define failure of humanity uh, to live in God's presence and uh, for God's purposes. Kind of describe how you structure each part of the book to help us not only learn what the scripture teaches, but really to take to heart what God is saying about being uh, in his presence, his desire to be with us, um, and the purpose that that he has for us as part of his family. Yeah, well, one of the things that's clear to us all the way through scripture is that God is always the one who's making the first move. Mm -hmm. He's always the one who's taking the initiative and offering his presence to us. And so in each of the first chapters of each of the four parts, we talk about how God is offering his presence to his people. And so part one is basically in the garden at creation. And then part two is the nation of Israel. Part three is the person of Jesus Christ. And part four is the movement of the Holy Spirit in the early church. And so in each of those parts, uh, the first chapter in that section is about God's initiative, how he's offering his presence. And then the second part of that is always about how uh, we belong in his presence and how we are um, received into the family. And then the next chapter is always how we're caught up in his purpose and how he's offering for us to participate in the family business. And then the fourth part in each section is our failure as humans, how we miss the mark, how we um, fall, we stray off the path of life, we choose the path of death instead, and then what God does about that or how he continues to move toward us picks up again in the next section of mm-hmm. each one, except, of course, in the very last chapter of the book, which has, you know, more of a future-looking invitation into dreaming and imagining what it will look like to live with God forever. So in the first part of the book, we're talking about how God set up creation, but then um, we end that section by talking about the fall, how how Adam and Eve kind of gave into sin and how shame came into the world. And that's why we're all hiding. That's why we have this question. Does God really like me? Because we're hiding because of shame. Mm -hmm. We look at the fall there. And in the second part, we're talking about how God called Abraham and raised up Israel to be the people of his purposes in the world. But then we end that part too with kind of the failure of Israel, which is the exile where they, you know, they're kicked out of the land um, and God kind of has to restart his purposes. Uh, And then we go in and start talking about uh, Jesus in the third part. And of course that part ends with, with the cross where Jesus has kind of taken up all of those failures of Adam and Eve and the failures of Israel, but really the sin of the whole world. And he enters into death to take care of the sin and death for us. 
so that we can overcome shame. And then the last part of the book then is, well, how, how do we gather around that cross that saves us and gives us a new identity as children of God and a new purpose as part of the family of God? And so it's really, uh, it's going through the whole Bible and kind of sharing the whole story of God's presence and I've worked with us, but it's also doing it, we think, hopefully, in a very practical way. So yes. people can like, really kind of stay close to the text and it moves. It, it's a pretty readable book. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. We tried to make it readable. <laughs> now, one of the things that really surprised me when I first opened the book, and I'm looking through the table of contents and each of the parts of the book, the first one is titled God's Idols. And you, um, you parse the word image that we are created in God's image and why that's uh, that's important. Can you explain that? Because it threw me off initially and I had to, as every reader should do, I had to read, okay, what are we, what are we talking about here? Because, you know, we are told that idols are something we should shun in every circumstance because we are placing in things uh, created by man's hands, the attributes of God, and these are created things. So explain the, that part of the, the title and how that relates to the early part of, uh, of what we learn in scripture. Sure. Yeah, it is. Uh, we kind of use that language on purpose because it's surprising, but it, it worked. Is, yeah, but, but that really is the, the purpose of the word, the way that it's used. It's it's really, um, you know, the reason that there's such a strong prohibition against idols is because God has already created idols of His presence and of His um, king of His rule and reign, and those idols are humanity. And so we kind of unpack the word idol and what idols meant in the ancient world um, in two different directions. One is that whenever the ancient peoples would build a temple to a god, it was said that the god didn't actually dwell in that temple until the idol had been installed in the temple. And once the idol had been installed in the temple, then it was as if the presence of the god was in that temple. And then the second way of understanding that is that uh, ancient rulers would erect statues of themselves at the edges of their boundaries so that anytime someone would cross over into that king's territory, they would see these idols standing around the edges of the territory and immediately know who was king in this place. And so when God created humanity, he was using imagery that the, I mean, what we see in scripture is using the imagery that the ancient Israelites would have understood which is that God created humanity as his idols, which are the absolute representation of his presence. The, play, the, the, the God dwells in the house of creation because the idols that he created in his image are now installed in that garden. And then he also shows clearly where his rule and reign extends in that wherever humanity goes, God's rule and reign goes with them. And so they, mar- they mark the lordship and the rule and reign of, of the king. Who is God? As a lot of times people, you know, we've all probably said things like, well, if we're followers of Jesus, then we're the hands and feet of God. Um, but if we think about that, what does that actually mean? Well, it means, you know, if we're the hands and feet of God, then we're, we're kind of, a, we are the body of God. And we're, we're said in the New Testament that we're the body of Christ as Christ followers. The church is the body of Christ. Of these types of things. And so we were trying to use that idol mm-hmm. to, get, to really get at that. Too, many, too much of the time, I think, when we say that the image of God, we think of, um, you know, like our smartphones and our televisions and our computer screens, like displaying an image of some information that's far away. But the biblical use in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 of this image of God is, is much more um, intimate. It's much more tangible. It's like, no, we're physically, in some sense, we, we are where God is, you know, supposed to be ruling and reigning, where, where his presence is supposed to be, you know, kind of... Um, 
gifted to the rest of the world. And so humanity, the reason why Israel was told not to have idols in one sense was certainly because God is invisible and you can't make a representation of who God is. But the other reason is kind of, well, because God actually made his own idols. Like he made the images that he wanted in the world, and those images are humanity. Uh, and so we're not supposed to make any any other ones because he already took care of it. Mm. Now, our time is so short, and there's so much packed into this book that we won't have an opportunity to talk about. But let's talk about the Old Covenant uh, and the law revealed to us that sin existed, and it was very clear that we could not live up to, not we, but they could not live up to the standards of the law. Under the New Covenant, we uh, have been ex- we have seen the grace of God extended over us, and we have access to God because of what He has done. If we want to recognize that God does, in fact, want to um, uh, to be with us. I mean, believing is the, certainly the first step to do that, but that he really likes us and for, and for that reason wants to, uh, to be with us. Give us some practical steps to begin that process while we're waiting to get the book that we're going to order. <laughs> Does God really like me uh, to really study this out? Yeah, well, some practical steps for that are um, I have found it really helpful to do what I call a manual journaling, which is we, we talk about it quite a bit in the book. Mm-hmm. We, do, um, we do practical exercises at the end of each chapter to sort of build the progression. Um, but I think first and foremost, is I would encourage people to actually go and look at the, the book of Exodus and read about Hagar. Um, Genesis, Genesis sorry, <laughs> Genesis, and, and find the story of, of Hagar, and then also go to Exodus and find the story of God visiting Moses in the burning bush. And um, those are just two places to start. We're seeing this very personal God that comes down and visits his people, and especially Hagar. Hagar has always been especially significant to me um, because she is not part of the promised line. And God really doesn't have any particular reason to treat her in any sort of special way because she's not part of his promised line. And yet when she is, um, when she runs away from Abram and is out in the wilderness, God actually goes out of his way, pursues her and speaks to her and makes promises to her. And he says, she names him the God who sees me. And so I think even just beginning to understand and try to think about what would it be like for God to see me right now, to actually be able to see me. And if he sees all of me and he still wants to be with me, that could be an invitation to how can I begin to receive his presence with me on a daily basis and just trying to imagine that God can actually see me where I am. And I know for some people that will stir up a lot of shame because they'll be thinking, I don't want God to see me right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, I mean, we do address that in the book too, of ways to be able to meet God even in our darkest places and have him come alongside and, and say to us, you are my beloved child. We talk about the baptism of Jesus and how when we are in Christ, that delight that the Father has for Jesus That's at right. his baptism is the same delight that we are brought into yes. when we are baptized in his name. Oh, so good. Once again, the book is titled, Does God Really Like Me? Discovering the God Who Wants to Be With Us. The book is published by InterVarsity Press, currently available. Sid and Jeff Holzclaw, thank you so much for talking with us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Great to be here. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the presidential debate tonight will give voters their final opportunity to compare President Donald Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden 
side by side during an event that offers up both opportunities and pitfalls for the candidates with less than two weeks uh, to go before Election Day. By the way, 43 million Americans have already voted. Well, the debate comes as controversy swirls around each candidate and even the debate itself. And as Congress is still in session negotiating an economic stimulus measure for the continuing coronavirus pandemic and pushing a Supreme Court nominee across the finish line. It's a busy time. It also happens less than two weeks ahead of Election Day that could possibly see results delayed due to the increased reliance on mail-in ballots nationwide because of the pandemic. Both sides have been gearing up teams of lawyers to fight legal battles over ballots that could even make their way up to the Supreme Court. Biden has framed the presidential election as a battle for the soul of the nation, while Trump has said the race comes down to a choice between the American dream and a socialist hellhole. I'm quoting. Both men have also uh, gone on attack with Trump calling Biden's family a criminal enterprise and Biden saying the president is a national embarrassment. Well, with less than two weeks to go in the 2020 presidential election cycle, here's what to know about the final presidential debate. Well, the debate will be held at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee. It will begin at 6 o'clock p.m. East, or rather Pacific time, like the first presidential debate and the vice presidential debate. Also like the previous presidential debate and the vice presidential debates uh, of yesteryear. The moderator will be NBC News White House correspondent Kristen Welker. She will moderate the uh, event. It's an opportunity to change a campaign momentum. Well, maybe not now, two weeks before the election and 43 million ballots cast, but there are a number of um, inflection points during a presidential campaign that have the potential to swing momentum one way or the other. The conventions for each party can do that. So Uh, So can the first presidential debate, which is often dangerous for an incumbent who's facing a challenge fresh off several primary debates. And October's surprise, of course, have that potential as well. But barring a major surprise of the next 12 days, this face-to-face meeting between Biden and Trump will be perhaps the final opportunity for either candidate to significantly change the momentum of their race. Trump, who is trailing in the polls, if you believe the polls, could make a close Uh, with uh, a decisive debate win, or Biden, who's leading, could increase his odds of victory even further with a dominant performance. Major gaffes or poor performances from either candidate, of course, could have the opposite effect. Well, Trump will likely uh, bring up Hunter Biden's and the email report. He's not likely to get an answer, but he'll interject it. And the Supreme Court um, is not a topic, but it's likely to come up. The Senate is set to confirm Judge uh, Amy Coney Barrett on Monday. The Senate Judiciary voted on it earlier, um, but it's not an official topic for the um, debate. The topics for the debate are fighting COVID-19, American families, race in America, climate change, national security, and leadership. Talk Uh, Topics were selected by Welker. It's likely that Trump will uh, bring up the Supreme Court topic himself, however, just as his campaign indicated, he will likely mention the Hunter Biden email story. Well, candidates will have uh, their mics muted at certain times after constant interruptions by the candidates. The the debate commission announced that it would modify how it's going to enforce the rules both candidates agreed to before the debate began. Each candidate is afforded two uninterrupted minutes to speak at the beginning of each 15-minute topic. And on Thursday, the microphone for the candidate who is not speaking during that time will be cut. Both candidates' mics will be open for the rest of each segment, allowing candidates to interject as they go back and forth on the issues. The Commission on Presidential Debates is announcing that Mike Cutting emphasized that the uh, mic rule does not affect the overall debate rules. So that's one of the... uh, 
major issues to expect in all of this. Now, as you might recall, there was a cancellation of a debate that was supposed to be held on the 15th. Three presidential debates were originally planned, too few perhaps, but nonetheless, all that we were going to get uh, today represents the second debate, but should have been the third. And then there's no formal agreement that the debate uh, be about foreign policy, although it's one of the topics that will be discussed. And tens of millions, I think the last count I had was 43 million, have already um, made the decision to, uh, to, or I should say, have cast their ballots. So uh, how important is this debate to most Americans remains to be seen. And it will also be interesting to see uh, how many people actually watch the debate, given what we, uh, we saw last time around. We'll just keep our, uh, our eyes open on that. One commentator pointed out that uh, Joe Biden must answer certain questions during this debate that he has managed to avoid and the media has failed to press him on. First and foremost, he has to be asked about his knowledge of his son Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings. That's not going to happen unless President Trump brings it up. Also, the American people deserve a thorough answer from Biden on the matter of tax increases. Uh, we already know that they're going to go up significantly, not just for those earning 400000 and above, but on much uh, lower income come people as well. Then Biden has to come clean on his intentions when it comes to ending the Senate filibuster and packing the Supreme Court with liberal justices. He's been very coy on that question. And again, he has not been pressed. Biden also has to be um, quizzed on his plan to redirect police funding. What does that mean actually um, is uh, another of the questions. And finally, he needs to be asked how he um, uh, now uh, can claim the support of the forgotten men and women in America and making products here at home. Uh, particularly when he uh, supports policies that will destroy their way of life. Now, this is one commentator saying these are questions that he should ask. These are the five questions that are not part of the debate. It will confirm that when it comes to debate commission, the fix is in if these topics don't come up and pretty much guarantee they will not, or if they are asked, will be deflected. As I mentioned, the, the former vice president did comment on court packing, but in sort of an indirect way. The presidential candidate said that he would form a commission to evaluate the Supreme Court when he was asked about expanding the court past the current threshold of nine justices. The move or packing the court has been floated by a number of Democratic lawmakers after Republicans moved to nominate and have all but confirmed Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court following Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death last month. Uh, Biden told CBS News 60 Minutes that he would create a bipartisan group to provide recommendations within a half year on how his administration would deal with the Supreme Court. Apparently, he doesn't have a mind of his own on this subject and a decade ago said he thought it was a bad idea. If elected, what I will do is I will put together a national commission of bipartisan commissions of scholars constitutional scholars, Democrats, Republicans, liberal conservatives, and so on. The former vice president remarked, he added that they will um, have 180 days to come up with a recommendation on how to reform the court system because it's getting out of whack the way it, uh, in which it is being handled. Now, what he means by that is uh, you no longer have a liberal majority. You don't have a, uh, uh, the same number of liberals and conservatives. That is the court out of whack. Now, that shouldn't matter if you're basing your decisions in the judiciary on uh, the Constitution, what the Constitution says, what it doesn't say, what it allows, what it doesn't allow. If, however, you are interpreting the Constitution as what seems right today, uh, you've rejected the rule of law and it's the rule of, uh, of men. Um, so essentially what he is describing is unless there is a, a, 
uh, liberal majority, that means the court is out of whack. This is before Amy Coney Barrett, who says she's going to make her decisions based on what the Constitution actually says, has had the opportunity, first of all, to be confirmed or to cast a single decision on a single case. So we'll see what happens 180 days into a Biden administration should he win this election. Meanwhile, DNI Radcliffe, FBI and the FBI rather, say that Iran, Russia, they are attempting to interfere in the 2020 election. Uh, They have obtained some voter registration information. This is according to the director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe, uh, in an FBI press conference. He noted that both nations had taken specific actions to influence voters' opinions. He noted that the registration information they obtained could be used to confuse voters through uh, false information. The Iranian interference that's been discovered, Radcliffe said, has been designed to incite social unrest and damage the president. This data can be used by foreign actors to attempt to communicate false information to registered voters that they hope will cause confusion, sow chaos, and undermine your confidence in American democracy, he said. To that end, we have already seen Iran sending spoofed emails designed to intimidate voters, incite social unrest, and damage the president. Uh, You may have uh, seen some reporting on this in the last 24 hours, or you may have even seen one of the recipients of those emails. He added that Iran was distributing a video with false information about fraudulent ballots uh, uh, and other content to include a video that implies that individuals could cast fraudulent ballots even from overseas. The video and um, any claims about such an alleged fraudulent ballot are not true, he said. We're going to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Lucy Swindoll has gone on to her reward. Uh, She believed in God's grace and being herself, so says Christianity Today. I spent quite a bit of time today looking for an obituary for her, and finally, Christianity Today posted something this afternoon. Uh, She uh, was a devotional um, author. She was a popular speaker known for her celebration of life, her commitment to being herself. She died this week after contracting COVID-19. She was 88. Uh, She wrote a popular book on Christian singleness in the 80s. She became one of the first women of faith speakers in the 90s. I know many of us remember her there uh, when the organization launched as a counterpart to the men's ministry Promise Keepers. Um, She's the older sister of Chuck Swindoll uh, and had a message of God's grace throughout her life. She said, legalism is the worst thing that ever happened to the church. When I realized that God deals in grace, it set me free to be who I really am, end quote. Well, it was a theme she returned to frequently as she urged Christian women to find joy and be who God wants them to be, not who others expect them to be. She told jokes. She laughed a lot. She had that very deep, husky voice. She said um, she was a witness to the work of Christ in her life. Well, everything changed because of grace, she said. Now all we have uh, have to do is know him, trust him, see what he does with our lives, and love people in the into the kingdom. I don't think it's our place to tell people how to live. We can't uh, make people believe, but we. But if they see in the believer love and fun and joy, just the thrill of being alive, they say. What is it that you have? I want the same. Well, Swindoll saw her mother soften and found herself falling in love with Jesus. She took Bible classes at school four nights a week, depending on um, her, uh, her faith. She said she learned the core truth that Jesus did uh, not want people to have eternal life, but abundant life. She was born in 1932 in El Campa, Texas. Uh, she was the middle child, the only daughter of uh, Earl and Lavelle Swindoll. The three kids were Orville, uh, Lucille, and Charles. 
uh, but known by everyone, including themselves, as Bubba, Tata, and Babe. <laughs> as an adult, she recalled that she was jealous of Orville because he excelled at piano, and she was jealous of Chuck because he uh, wowed adults with recitations of memorized poetry, and everybody liked Babe. Uh, but her father encouraged her to pursue her own dreams. And uh, that is the Lucy Swindoll that we all came to know. At 25, she moved away from her home. She got a job as a cartographer for mobile Oil in Dallas, she worked there for 30 years, retired as the manager of uh, the right-of-ways and claims department at Exxon uh, Mobil. She also performed in the Dallas Civic Opera, taking a role in 34 operas from 59 to 73. Her, um, she had favorites. She felt that God told her, I have given you life, Lucy. It's a gift. Now I want you to live that life by embracing the whole world. Well, she wrote a book about grace, joy, singleness, and embracing the whole world in 1982 after her brother introduced her to an editor from Multnomah Books who asked her if she would like to uh, liked being single. The book was called um, Wide My World, Narrow My Bed. She went on to write more uh, than half a dozen titles, including Notes to a Working Woman. After uh, you, uh, you're dressed for success, you bring the confetti, God brings the joy, and life celebrated. In 96, she joined the close friend Mary Graham and four other Christian women, Patsy Claremont, Thelma Wells, Sheila Walsh, and Marilyn Meberg. Uh, for a speaking tour from a new group called Women of Faith. The six sat on a stage, they sang, they uh, had a front porch. It was a, a thrilling event for women who came from all over the country to enjoy uh, Women of Faith. Well, the first event drew some 2,000 women, but then the crowd grew to four, six, 10,000, 20,000. Swindle, who often f told funny stories at the event, was initially surprised to see the response. In her mind, they were just stories, but people enjoyed them. Uh, when I'm with the Lord face to face, she once said, it's my own life that I lay down and not the prefabrications of one who always tried to be somebody else. Well, she is now before the Lord. And again, Lucy Swindoll has uh, gone on to her reward, having died of complications related to COVID-19. Sad to, uh, to hear that, but certainly enjoyed uh, her public ministry. Meanwhile, the plot is thickening over the origins of the Pope's civil union endorsement that was made uh, just days ago at the Vatican. Questions swirled on Thursday about the origins of those views. It was a bombshell comment endorsing same-sex civil unions with all evidence suggesting that he made them in 2019 in an interview that was never broadcast in its entirety. Well, the Vatican refused to comment on whether it cut the uh, remarks from its uh, own broadcast or if the Mexican broadcaster that conducted the interview did, and it didn't respond to questions about why it allowed the comments to be aired now in the documentary Francesco that uh, premiered on Wednesday. Well, in the movie, which was shown at the Rome Film Festival, he said, gay people have a right to be in a family since they are children of God. You can't kick somebody out of a family nor make their life miserable for this. The Pope went on to say what we have to have is a civil union law. Uh, that way they are legally covered. Well, these comments caused a firestorm, not surprisingly thrilling progressives, alarming conservatives, given official Vatican uh, teaching pro uh, prohibitions uh, on any endorsement of homosexual unions. And while serving as the, uh, the archbishop in Buenos Aires, uh, Francis endorsed civil unions there for gay couples as an alternative to same-sex marriages. He had never come out publicly in favor of legal protections for civil unions, however, uh, as Pope and no pontiff before him had either. Now, one of Francis' uh, top communications 
communications advisors insisted the Pope's comments were old news, saying that they were made during the May 2019 interview with the Mexican broadcaster. Of course, they weren't made public, so most people were unaware. There's nothing new because it's part of that interview, he says. It seems strange that you don't remember. But Televisa uh, didn't air those comments when it broadcast the interview at the time, nor did the Vatican when it put the recordings of it out. The broadcaster has not commented on the intrigue uh, since all of that. Well, doing so, the Vatican reasoned, would not um, only condone deviant behavior, but create an equivalence to marriage, which the Church holds as indissoluble. So the Vatican frequently edits the Pope's uh, uh, speaking in official transcripts and videos, especially when he speaks on sensitive issues. Now, it seems rather odd if you consider who the Pope is supposed to be, that he would have to be edited, but that has been the case. Some version of the footage was apparently available in the Vatican archives, which were opened to the filmmaker. Well, Televisa hasn't confirmed that the comments were made during its interview, but the scene of the documentary is identical to the Televisa interview, including the yellow background. So it's pretty certain that that 2019 interview is where it originated. Where this will go from here remains to be uh, to be seen, um, but these were some uh, pretty daunting comments made by the Pope uh, in this now-released Vatican documentary. We'll continue to follow that story. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for engineering today's program. Um, actually, he's producing. Clark Hilton is engineering. Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day as well. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G-Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.